Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week, we left off in the middle of Detective James Doucet's trial testimony. So far, we've covered the entirety of his direct examination, and we're about halfway through his cross. Mack's questioning of Doucet thus far has revealed a very different picture of Harris County's investigation than what we heard in direct. The majority of his direct examination focused on Sandy's interrogation. Barnett's goal was very clear. Doucet was the vehicle that she used to convince the jury that Sandy was evading questions changing her story, and feigning her emotions. Detective Doucet was unequivocal in his responses. There was no forced entry. Sandy was not cooperating, etc. But during Cross, he's been far less forceful in his responses. As Mac draws attention to the failings of the, quote, objective and comprehensive investigation, Doucet doesn't deny them. Rather, he repeatedly shifts the blame onto the lead investigator, Sean Carazal. So far, to this point, he's thrown Corazal under the proverbial bus twice already. Let's move on now and see what he has to say on day two of his testimony. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mac starts the day out having Doucet explain to the jury that he and Carazal lied to Liz Rose during her interview on the 26th of December. Although between Barnett and Doucet, again, that blame gets placed squarely onto Sean Carazal and not onto Doucet. Mac asks Doucet if he and Carazal lied to Liz about Sandy being checked out by a doctor at the scene that night before they went to the station for her interview. Doucet says that he doesn't recall that. Mac brings out the tape recording, Barnett objects, the jury is excused, tape is played, and Barnett objects again. Since it's actually Carazal who makes the statement, not Doucet, she maintains that he can't be impeached by this tape recording, even though Doucet was sitting right next to Carazal during this interview. 
Ultimately, the jury isn't allowed to hear the tape since it was Carazal who lied, not Doucet. Mac moves on to the duo's statement to Liz that they're not pointing fingers at anyone. Listen to this exchange. I wish we had video or audio from the trial, because Doucet's cross-examination up to this point reads to me like he's being very dismissive, maybe even sarcastic, but at least coy, from the transcript. Mac, okay, and remember saying you're looking at every angle of this investigation? Doucet, yes. Okay, of course, as far as the statement, quote, we're not pointing fingers at anybody, end quote, that's a lie, isn't it? Doucet, possibly. Mac, well, let me tell you why it may be more than possibly a lie. You made that comment to Elizabeth Melgar as you just testified under oath that you did on December the 26th. We established yesterday that on December 24th at 2.10 a.m. in the morning, an effort was made to file murder charges against Ms. Melgar, and they were declined by the DA's office, right? Doucet, from what I understand. Unfortunately, Mac gets a little greedy here, and it backfires. The first time he asked Doucet if it was a lie, he responded, quote, possibly. Then Mac digs in a little deeper and points out that Carazal attempted to file murder charges against Sandy prior to the interview with Liz, and then circles back to the was-it-a-lie question. And of course, there's no more possibly from Doucet now. From the transcript, Mac. Okay, so do you try to get murder charges filed against Sandy Melgar on the 24th, but on the 26th, quote, we're not pointing fingers at anybody, end quote? Doucet, I cannot answer that. Mac, can you at least candidly tell us that that would be a lie? Doucet, no. Next, Mac moves on to some damage control. During direct, Sandy was made out to look like a liar, evading questions, changing her story. Here, Mac is trying to reverse that image. He asked Doucet if Sandy told him during the interrogation that after dinner, she and Jim stopped by CVS to get drink mixers. Doucet confirms. She said that it was a bottle of Sprite and a bottle of Coke. He confirms that too. Then Mac shows him the crime scene picture where we see a bottle of Sprite and a bottle of Coke. And Doucet acknowledges them. Then he asks if the surveillance video from CVS confirms what Sandy said during her interview, which was that she waited in the car and Jim went in to buy the mixers. Doucet agrees that the video indeed confirms that, as well as the receipt that was found in the trash can. Now, none of this is really critical information, Essentially, Mac is just making the jury aware that Sandy was in fact giving detectives credible information during her interview. This line of questioning did, however, lead to kind of a humorous exchange between Mac and Barnett. From the transcript. Mac. Okay, then Miss Barnett was asking you questions about a bottle of booze. Barnett. Your Honor, I object to counsel reading off what I asked him with the witness. I think that's inappropriate. Just ask the question. Mac. Never heard of that one before, and I object. I object to that nefarity. And then the judge. Just rephrase your question. Next, Max starts down the same path with Los Cucos. Sandy said in her interview that she and Jim had dinner at Los Cucos. Carpenter had found a receipt at the scene from Los Cucos, and Dusay and Carazal went to Los Cucos to verify. But here we see a shift back into the I can't recalls by Dusay. Carlsall's report says that he and Doucet went there to check for cameras. But it doesn't say that they actually interviewed anyone, just that he didn't see any cameras. Mac is trying to get Doucet to admit that neither him or Carlsall bothered to interview the manager or the server that waited on the Melgars on the night of Jim's murder. But Doucet doesn't recall. 
Of course, we already know that that's exactly what happened. The detectives made zero attempt to speak to anyone who witnessed the Melgars interacting with each other that night, even when they went through the trouble of physically going to the restaurant. Now, to be fair, Doucet does acknowledge that this was a screw-up in not so many words. Mac asks him if he thinks it would be important for a good investigation, when the theory is that the wife killed the husband, to speak with anyone who saw them interacting with each other just hours before he was killed. Doucet agrees that that should have been done, but it wasn't. This, of course, isn't new information, but honestly, it still pisses me off every time I come across it. After that, Matt goes through the same process with Sandy's statement to Doucet that earlier in the day, Jim had went to a liquor store to buy some items. Detectives went to the store, pulled a security video, and of course, there's Jim, just like Sandy said. Then after that, Mac does what any good author would refer to as foreshadowing, and any attorney would call it laying a foundation. He asked Doucet if during his interview with Liz Rose that day, he instructed her to let him know if any of Sandy's memories begin to come back, because if she starts to remember anything, that would be of great importance to the case. Through his testimony, we find out that Doucet did precisely nothing on Jim's case from December 28th through May 5th. And on May 5th, all he did was stop by the computer forensics labs and pick up computers that the state's expert had been examining and take them back to the evidence room. But more on the computers later. Mac continues on with damage control. And by damage control, I mean giving the jury the full picture and understanding of what Sandy actually said during her interrogation. Doucet is asked about all the times that Sandy indicated that her head hurt. There were several. Then Mac points out all the times that Sandy qualified her changing stories about the time. With, I think, or I'm just guessing, or I don't really know, it was probably. Doucet acknowledges that this happened in literally every instance of Sandy giving a time. And on a side note, I'm starting to read a shift in Doucet's demeanor as Cross moves along. At the beginning, as I mentioned, he was dismissive and coy. But as the questioning continues, he seems to be getting more cooperative. He seems to be answering questions honestly and to the best of his ability. It reads to me that he and Mac are in a bit of a groove. Several times Doucet will say something like, let me double check that, I don't want to say something that's inaccurate. And then Mac will let him know that he appreciates that. As I read, honestly, I'm finding myself taking a liking to Doucet, at least during a lot of his cross-examination. Even when he's saying things that I disagree with, he's doing it in a professional manner. I almost get the feeling that under different circumstances, he and Mac might shoot the shit over a glass of bourbon somewhere. But anyway, I suppose that's neither here nor there. I just thought I'd mention it because I feel like I'm always being negative about the police officers and how they testify in this case. But at least in this instance, I have some respect for Doucet. He at least seems to be doing his best to answer Mac's questions. It's a very different read when compared to Curazal's testimony, which we covered a few weeks ago. Which I suppose may be why Doucet is testifying the way that he is. As he said earlier, he didn't botch this investigation. Carazal did. He would have done things differently. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As Mac moves on with Cross, he wants to clear up some of the misconceptions from direct. He wants to just have Doucet use the interview transcript to refresh his memory. But Barnett insists that he plays the tape. In her words, quote, there are a lot of mistypes in the transcript, end quote. Mac does a good job, and Doucet is really being very cooperative in pointing out that Sandy never really did change her story, which again is the conclusion Jim Fitzgerald came to. It's made abundantly clear that Sandy at no point claimed that the garage door was ever closed. From beginning to end, she stated that she went into the house first and doesn't know if Jim ever closed the door. And then after that, we move into the domestic violence. During the course of Sandy's interrogation, she's asked nine times if Jim was ever abusive to her. She answers no every single time. And Doucet confirms that in Cross. Now, we learned last week that Doucet has no knowledge of whether or not anyone checked into police records to actually figure out if there had been any violence reported in the Melgar's home. But suffice it to say that there hadn't been. No police reports, no witness statements, nothing. There is zero evidence that the Melgars had ever been violent towards one another. Despite Sandy and literally every single witness who was spoken to by the police, defense investigators, and myself, all stating emphatically that the Melgars had an exceptionally kind and loving relationship, Doucet says in Cross that he had some concerns. From the transcript, Mac. At any time during this interrogation did, while Sandy admitted that, like many married couples, they had disagreements, did she ever at any time suggest in any way that she had ever been physically abused by Jamie Melgar? Doucet, her words said no. Mac, okay. Her words say no, but you're implying that there's something else that may say yes? Doucet, her reaction raised questions. Mac, reaction raised questions. What reactions are you referring to? Doucet, changing her voice when she answered those questions. Mac, okay, so even though she flatly denied it over and over again, you asked it over and over again, you're saying that based upon your experience that the inflection of her voice kind of maybe caused you to doubt that? Doucet, somewhat, yes. While my initial reaction is to be irritated by Doucet's testimony here, I kind of have to check myself. I mean, I oftentimes bring in behavioral analysts to evaluate statements, so I can't really begrudge him for saying that he believes Sandy was giving nonverbal cues that maybe there was some abuse. Also, we have to keep in mind that neither Doucet or Curazal ever interviewed anyone to determine if Sandy was actually telling the truth here. So really, he couldn't possibly know if Jim and Sandy had a good relationship. And that's because it was never a priority to actually find out. Next, Mac draws attention to a particularly sad part of Sandy's interview. I know it's been several months since most of you have heard it, 
But there comes a time when Sandy breaks down and cries and says that she has to tell her daughter. Now remember, at that point, it had been hours since Sandy was discovered in the closet and Jim was found murdered. Sandy was evaluated by EMS, put into a squad car for several hours, and then transported to the police station. Her phone had been confiscated, and Liz was living in Europe at the time. Can you imagine being a wife and a mother and realizing that you're going to have to tell your daughter that her father is dead? Do you think that would distract you? Maybe just a little bit? I recently went through something similar. My mother received some really bad news about her health, and her outlook was looking extremely grim. And she's okay, by the way. She's actually doing great. But at the time, it was looking like her doctors were about to send her home to die. As you can imagine, I was devastated by the news. And that news happened to come on my 8-year-old's birthday. I went through waves of emotion all day and had to put on a happy face for Parker's birthday party. And after the party, I had to sit down with my 14-year-old Quint and tell him what was going on. I had a literal panic attack, and that's not something that happens to me. I couldn't breathe. I collapsed onto my bathroom floor. If you're a parent, you know exactly why that happened to me. I don't get panic attacks. I work in rationality and logic most of the time. But the thought of breaking my son's heart, hurting him, was literally more than I could bear. I cried when I watched this portion of the interview because I know what Sandy was going through. And I know why she was crying. She knew that she was about to crush her daughter's heart. As a brief aside to my brief aside, Quentin actually gave me some great advice after we both spent hours sobbing through a painful discussion. He said, and I quote, Dad, if something like this ever happens again, and you're so upset you can't quite get all the words out while you're crying, next time, why don't you open with, Grandma's not dead, and then move on with the rest. Doucet later testifies that he thinks Sandy may be demonstrating an indication of deception when she answers questions about the possibility of Jim cheating on her. He says that she says no, but with a different voice, which he stated could be an indication of deception. Mac asks if that's something that might warrant further investigation. Doucet says that it would, but as we all know, that never happened. At least not by the detectives. It has been investigated, and there is zero evidence that either Jim or Sandy had any love interest other than with each other. Barnett even stated as much in her closing arguments. Paraphrasing, she basically said, Jim's not that type of guy. Nonetheless, Doucet indicates that at least during Sandy's interview, his spidey senses were tingling, so to speak, based on the tone of voice Sandy used when answering that question. After that exchange, Mac lights on fire. He hammers away at Doucet, one question after another. Point by point, Doucet is answering questions, honestly, I'll add, that are completely dismantling Barnett's dog and pony show from direct testimony. Here's sort of a summary of how this went down. Sandy told you that there was no abuse, right? Right. Did you find any evidence there was any abuse? No. Sandy told you they had a good marriage, right? Yes. Did you find any evidence they didn't have a good marriage? No. You asked Sandy if Jim was planning to leave her, right? Yes. And she said no, right? Yes. And did you uncover any evidence indicating that Jim was planning to leave Sandy? No, we did not. Did Maria indicate they had a good marriage? Yes. Herman? Yes. Marissa? Yes. Gerson? Yes. Monica? Yes. Mac is firing off these questions in rapid succession and Doucet is answering just as fast. If the jury was listening, 
Matt completely negated the entirety of Ducey's direct examination, all five hours of it, in about 60 seconds. Matt continues, and he's relentless. And check out Ducey's response to being asked why it would be significant if a suspect's blood is found mixed with the victims in a case like this. It wasn't, by the way. None of Sandy's DNA was found on or near Jim's body. But listen closely to what Ducey says here. Quote, On most stabbing scenes, many times a suspect will incur cuts on their own hands. End quote. This is another one of those points where I'm wondering if the jury is really listening. In most stabbing cases, many times a suspect will incur cuts on their own hands. That's why he was looking for Sandy's blood on Jim. Matt continues, quote, You asked this question of her. What if we don't find any stranger's DNA there? Do you remember asking that? Doucet, yes. Seacrest, I bet you kind of wish you hadn't asked that question now, don't you? I'm going to end my discussion of James Doucet's testimony with the following exchange. There's more to the testimony, about 50 more pages actually, but this back and forth really captures the essence and the importance of his input on the investigation. You can stop and start Sandy's video all you want and speculate about open garage doors and forced entry, but we really get to the bones of the investigation here. The rest of the transcript is available on our website if you want to read it. So after a short break for our sponsors, I want you to listen closely to this exchange. And I do also want to go on the record as saying that I respect the shit out of Ducey for at least answering these questions honestly. I'll be right back. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The questioning starts with Mac. Do you recall stating to Sandy Melgar, quote, You know we don't quit. You know you're going to see a lot of me. You know you're going to see a lot of my partner. Do you remember that line of questioning? Yes. In fact, that's more of a line or a statement on your part, but you clearly give that information to her. Do you not? Yes. Do you remember telling her that something you wanted her to understand is that we, quote, is what we do when we investigate something like this, Sandra. I want you to understand that we go to all extremes. Did you say that? Yes. Quote, we go to all extremes? What does that mean? Do say, whatever it takes to investigate the case. Mac, I wrote this down. I want to make sure I don't misquote you. When you told her you're going to go to all extremes, that means whatever it takes to investigate the case, right? Yes. And when you say that, quote, we're going to find out everything about you, what does that mean? Do say, research. Okay, and that's exactly what you told her, is it not? Yes. That's research, right? Yes, sir. Quote, we're going to find out everything about your husband. What does that mean? Is that more research? Yes, sir. Quote, we're going to talk to everybody in your neighborhood. What does that mean? That would be about a canvas. Tell the jury what a canvas is. 
When we make a homicide scene, we will canvas all the residents around that location, or if it's a business, all of the businesses, and speak to whoever there is to see if they saw anything that would make them a witness. Mac. Pretty essential work, isn't it? Doucet. Yes, sir. Mac. Quote, we're going to talk to everybody that you're related to. What's that mean? Family? Yes. Quote, we're going to learn everything. What does that mean? That covers what I had told her already. Let me, let me suggest this, and you can, you don't have to agree with me, but if you're going to learn everything, that means that you're going to be objective, right? Yes. That's going to mean you're going to be thorough, right? Yes. You're going to follow leads, right? Yes. You're going to keep an open mind. Yes. You're basically going to scour the area and conscientiously look for any and everything that can solve this crime, right? Yes. Can you tell our jury under oath that this was done in this case? Doucet. No. People can sit back on their high horse and say that I'm too hard on the investigators in this case or that I'm biased. Go right ahead. But here are the facts. It's not just me making broad, biased, or unfair assertions about this pathetic excuse for an investigation. It's not just my opinion. It's a fact, Jack. Even the detective working right alongside Carazal, the only detective that the state called to the witness stand, states repeatedly on the record at trial under oath and in front of the jury that this case was not properly investigated. And that leads me to the last segment of today's show. It's no secret that a man named Sam Carroll has created a podcast intended to discredit me and this investigation, and a lot of you. To be honest, I've only heard part of the first episode and his latest episode, which was enough for me to lose interest. My position has basically been, you do you, and I'll do me. But this week, Mr. Carroll has made some pretty bold statements about me, this investigation, and you, the Truth and Justice Army. He's spread enough misinformation that my listeners have asked me to address some of these issues. So I'm going to make this as fact-based and drama-free as possible. However, if you, I don't know, don't give a shit what he has to say or what I have to say in response, now's a good time to tap out of this episode. I don't want to waste your time. Nothing I'm going to say between now and the end of this episode is new information, so please don't feel obligated to listen any further if you don't want to. And now for the rest of you, I would like to set the record straight. So this week, several of my listeners have written to me through Facebook, emails, Twitter, Instagram, private messages, all sending me screenshots of things Sam Carroll has been saying about the computer forensic information. So to recap, I covered this very briefly several months ago. The state had a computer forensics expert look at all the computers. They apparently didn't find anything of note because none of them were called to testify. Later, the defense had Eric Devlin, another computer forensic engineer, take a look at the computers and create a report. Then the defense called Devlin to testify on the stand. Now, understand, I don't know anything about computers other than pretty much how to turn them on and operate some of the programs within them. So the best I can give you, even to this day, about the computers is exactly what I said several months ago. The issue at hand is that in Devlin's report, It shows that around, and I don't have the report in front of me, I'm actually on the road right now, but right around 11 o'clock, I think 11.02 p.m. if memory serves, and actually, let me correct that, it doesn't say p.m., it says 11.02, which would be a.m. on a 24-hour clock, but I guess somehow the assumptions made that is 11.02 p.m., but it says there's a failed login on Sandy's computer. 
And then about a half hour later, there's a successful login on our computer. So it looks like someone tried to log into Sandy's computer right about the time that I believe Jim was killed, and that login attempt was unsuccessful. And then about a half hour later, someone successfully logged in. Now, when I first saw this report, I thought that was interesting. And I actually had a theory about how that might have happened. So I was pretty excited about it. So I reached out to Allison Seacrest, one of Sandy's lawyers, and I asked her about it. And she told me that no, that was nothing. It was some sort of computer-generated automatic type thing that happened on the computer. That there was no human activity. They had a forensic expert look at it. They spoke to him repeatedly about it because they saw it and they wanted to know more about it. And he told them over and over again that those were not human logins. So then I go to Eric Devlin's trial transcripts. And in the trial transcripts, he says that there was no human activity on these computers during the relevant time period. So between whatever it was, 7 o'clock at night on Saturday and 4 in the afternoon on Sunday when Sandy's found. So my assumption was, and still is really, that if there was no human activity on the computers during that time, during the time when those logins show up, then those logins must not have been human activity. And that's the extent of the knowledge I have on the topic, other than what Allison told me. So a couple of months ago, the issue was brought up again by Sam and his group, and they're making claims that someone, Colleen Barnett or whoever it was, had spoken to Devlin, and that he's now saying that this was human activity. These were human logins. So at that point, I contacted Allison again, because again, I have a theory about these logins, but it doesn't fit if they are automatically generated by the computer. When I told her what had been said, she was a little upset because she can't believe that Devlin would have changed his position to Barnett or whoever he talked to when he made absolutely clear to her and Mac over and over and over again before the trial that these were not human logins. Allison calls me back the next day. She says that Mac called Eric, and Eric confirmed that he had spoken to Colleen Barnett, and he had not changed his position. Those were not human logins. So that was it, and I dropped it. I didn't see any need to go any further into it. Because at this point, it was just feeling like drama. And I know this is too a little bit, but this goes a little deeper. So then, just last week, Sam addresses the issue again. And this is when I started getting flooded with screenshots and things of, that he typed out on Facebook and suggestion to listen to his latest podcast that aired last Sunday. Now, at this point, Sam Carroll is saying that he's had direct contact with Eric Devlin, and he can assure everyone that those were not human logins. And so finally, I broke down after several suggestions, and I listened to episode 15 of the Truth Is Justice podcast. Because honestly, if there's new information that I'm unaware of, and by the way, I'm unable to get, as I listen to that episode of the podcast, and, and I would actually suggest all of you, go ahead and do it. It'll be the most downloads he's ever had. It'll probably spike to number one in the iTunes charts this week if all of you go listen to episode 15 of Truth Is Justice. But I thought, great, if he's got new information, I want to hear it. Because I have taken this information and that report to several other computer forensics experts. And from the people I've spoken to, they all told me the same thing. They don't know what happened. It certainly seems like an incorrect login would be something a human did. But without a disk image, without the raw data, there's no way they can make any determination about it. All they have is Devlin's conclusions written in his report. So basically they said, unless you have the raw data or an image of the disk, you can't know anything more than what Devlin testified to, which again is why I've left it alone. Well, as I listen to this episode 15, first of all, I find out that I didn't realize that I was extremely biased and I'm only working towards Sandy's exoneration and not for justice for Jim. My tone has changed. Apparently, I have not only come to that conclusion, but have also announced that to the world that I'm only looking out for Sandy at this point and not Jim. I'm not sure when I did that. But then there's these comparisons that are made between 
how I interpret and investigate and look into every little minute detail of all of the state's experts, but I'm giving Eric Devlin a pass. So that's partially what I want to address, because at this point, my credibility is being called into question, and I want to at least explain to those of you that care why there hasn't been any further scrutiny of Devlin's testimony. The reason for that is because I don't understand it. I don't know computers to that level well enough to speak intelligently on the topic at all. And as I said, when I've taken the report to other experts, they've all told me they can't go into it anymore at all. Several of them have said, well, I would think an incorrect login is probably a human, but he says that it's not human. So there's nothing else I can do. And the comparison is, so let's look at, say, Maurice Carpenter. When I'm attacking these experts, as it's said, the word attack is used a lot throughout this podcast, but when I'm scrutinizing their work, it is because they have made provably correctable errors. Meaning, when Maurice Carpenter takes a photo of an entertainment center and there's a big gap and there's an HDMI cord hanging out of it and he says, nothing's missing from the entertainment center, that's provably false. It's clearly inaccurate. When a crime scene investigator doesn't check, document, anything, whether or not the door between the garage and the house even unlocks, I'm going to call them out on that. That's a very different scenario than here. And look at Celestina Rossi's testimony. As I said during that episode, I actually agree with her blood spatter analysis. The issue that I had with her testimony is when she went well beyond that. And she is trained and capable of going beyond that. She's trained to investigate crime scenes and all of that. But when she goes on record to the jury and makes very definitive, broad statements, like nothing was missing from the house, and this scene was staged, but then in cross-examination when she's questioned, and found out that she didn't actually look at the whole house, she hasn't looked at all the crime scene photos, she doesn't know what the entire scene looks like, and she has no idea whether anything's stolen or not, I'm going to call her out on that because she's misguiding the jury, pretending that she knows things that she doesn't actually know. And when Colleen Barnett, the prosecutor, comes on and says, these two red cords match, so they must have came from the house, and that's a provably false statement, and even when she goes into her closing arguments, after the one expert she put on that says, that Jim was never in the chair. There's no evidence that Jim was ever in the chair after he was attacked. And then she does a demonstration for the jury where Jim's sitting in the chair as she slits his throat. I'm going to point that out. But we don't have any of that here with Devlin. I'm quite certain that if Sam Carroll could come up with one person, one expert that can absolutely refute Devlin's testimony, that we would have heard from it by now. But nonetheless, I listened. And what I found was there's an issue that he has with a word choice by Devlin which could possibly be a transcription error. And speaking of transcription errors, that's one of the things that it was pointed out that I gave a hard time to the transcriptionists. But again, that's because there were absolutely transcription errors. And you don't have to take my word for it. The only person that, that I've said made some pretty significant errors in transcribing anything was the transcription that was created for Sandy's interrogation. There were some big errors in there, including one where Sandy says that she had too many drinks and got sick when she said nothing of the sort. But again, let me explain to you why I point that out. And I'm not going to give you my opinion. Let me quote Colleen Barnett directly from trial. This is from Doucet's testimony that we covered today, from Colleen Barnett. Quote, The statement, sometimes she gets things wrong. Overall, it's correct, but there are many mistypes and many things that I have been. The typist, the person who's doing the transcripts, gets things wrong. So I'm objecting to him impeaching him or talking about some specific language in the transcripts that may not be correct. So it's not just me that's saying there are transcription errors. 
but Mr. Carroll seems to be hanging his hat on this computer forensics information by a word. During Devlin's testimony, he's asked, of these three computers, was there any human activity, and I'm paraphrasing again, but in regards to these three computers, was there any human activity during the relevant time period? And Devlin responds, neither of them showed any human activity. So the word neither there is pointed out that neither generally applies to only two items, whereas Mac asked him about three. So maybe when he said that, he was only talking about two instead of three. And to be honest with you, I don't know, because I've never spoken to Eric Devlin. I've called him, I've requested an interview, I've never heard back. But then after all this, I text Allison Seacrest yesterday, because several people had sent me the screenshots from Sam Carroll, where he says that he's communicated directly with Devlin, and he can assure everyone that those were, in fact, human logins. So I sent it to Allison. I said, can you send this to Eric Devlin? And Allison called me back today, and she said that either her or Mac or both of them will come on once I'm back in the studio and they have all the appeal stuff wrapped up, and they're going to come on and do an interview, and they're going to explain this to you directly so you don't have to take my word for it, that when Allison contacted Eric Devlin today, she said that Eric Devlin told her, and how did he put it? That's a lie. He said that he has communicated with Sam, that Sam has sent him a few emails and they've gone back and forth, but that he didn't give him any information. And once again, absolutely and staunchly denies what Sam is saying on his Facebook page, information that came from Eric Devlin. Now, my position is this. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this. I only know what Allison is telling me that Devlin told her. And Allison did say, as I mentioned, they will come on the show and you can hear it directly from her. Eric Devlin, on the other hand, has media contracts and cannot do interviews, which is why he didn't call me back when I requested one. And so that's where I'm at on the situation right now. I'm not going to get into bashing on Sam Carroll or his podcast. As a matter of fact, one of the things that he said in his podcast when he said he was being attacked by people was that people were talking about his sound quality. And I'll tell you this, Sam, I don't have a problem with your sound quality. I thought it actually sounded pretty good. If you want any recommendations... I would recommend maybe losing the Blue Yeti mic and going with an actually cheaper dynamic mic. Condenser mics draw in a lot of room noise, so if you have any clicking going on in your mouth or anything like that, it all comes through with a mic like a Yeti. You can buy a nice dynamic mic made by Shure or Audio-Technica for under 100 bucks, and I think you'd be a lot better off by doing that. But other than that, I think your sound quality is great. Just a pro tip if you want it. And with that being said, I, I'm not going to give any more attention to this. I feel like I've already given it more attention than it needs. But when it gets to the point where our listeners, the Truth and Justice Army, the people that are actually working to find the truth and not spending their time trying to fight and bicker and argue with everyone else, are starting to bring to me and say, I have concerns. Sam Carroll's saying that you're lying. He's saying that you're not credible. He's saying that he talked to Eric Devlin and Devlin just reversed his claim. And, and to be fair, I don't think that's exactly what Sam said. He was, he was kind of cloak and dagger about it. But he says that after talking to him, he can assure everyone that these were human logins. So all I can tell you is what's in the report, what's in Devlin's testimony, and what the Seacrests have told me that Devlin has told them, which is that he does not reverse his position. There was no human activity on those computers. And again, I have a theory about those computers if those logins were real and made by a human. And I think that maybe the issue is that there's no activity after the logins. But again, that's just from what some computer forensics people have told me, but they don't have the raw data. Meaning, it may have been a human that typed in the password for the login, but since after the password's typed in, nothing happens, they don't go to a website or open a document or do anything once they get in, then it's likely not a user login. But what I was wondering is, 
what if the home invaders were stealing the computers? And I know that this is a thing that happens, and I'm going to address it in the next couple of weeks. But when I spoke to the victims of the Kingwood home invasion, and they told me that they had small electronics like laptops and iPads stolen from their house, they also told me that the home invaders made them give them the passwords so that they could unlock the devices so that they could wipe them clean and sell them. So my thought was, maybe our home invaders tried to log into the computer. They typed in a password that was given to them by Jim, probably. It didn't work. They typed it in wrong. Maybe a half hour goes by and there's the process of tying him up. Maybe there's some torturing happening. I don't know. But 30 minutes later, he does finally give them the correct password or they enter it incorrectly and the computer's logged in. But they don't do anything afterwards because all they needed was the password. And the other thing that I think might support that theory is the fact that there were two laptops, one of which I believe was documented in the report as being used prior to, like right prior to them going out to dinner. So you have a a laptop that's being used in the house before dinner and another laptop that has these logins in them. Both laptops were found together, if my understanding is correct, in the same computer bag. Now think about yourself, any of you that have a laptop. How many times do you store your laptop in a computer bag when it's in your house? I know I only put mine in a bag when I'm traveling with it. My laptop's in my house, it's either on my desk, or it's on the table, or it's even on the couch where I'm using it inside the house. I don't ever put it into a bag unless I'm going somewhere. And I've also never, just to store my laptops in my house, put two laptops in the same bag. I think that maybe the two laptops are in the same bag because the home invaders were intending to take the laptops. And when Jim got killed, as I've said many times, the entire plan was aborted. Now, everything I just said there, that's 100% just a spitballing theory by me that I've had for a while, but it seems like that can't be the case because Devlin is saying those were not human logins of the computer. And I have no reason or no way to dispute that. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to ignore anything. There's just no possible way for me, Sam Carroll, or anyone else to dispute that without the raw data. And with all of that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm still on the road. I have about 24 hours to write and record next week's episode before I leave on my vacation on Saturday. So hopefully we'll have a full episode next week. I really appreciate you guys putting up with the schedule. We're almost to the end of it and things will get back to normal. And I promise you, the work that I'm doing on the road right now is critically important, and I can't wait to reveal it to all of you. And until then, I'll see you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. 
If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.